Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Pete Brown is talking in defence of British food in his new book, Pie Fidelity. Pete Brown is an author, journalist, blogger and broadcaster specialising in food and drink, especially the fun parts like beer and cider. He has written several books, including Man Walks Into a Pub, Three Sheets to the Wind and The Apple Orchard. His discriminating palate has led him to be judge in the Great Taste Awards and the Radio 4 Food and Farming Awards and is a frequent contributor to Radio 4's The Food Programme. And today we're going to be talking about Pete's latest book, Pie Fidelity in Defence of British Food. Pete, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks very much for having me. Um, what's the idea behind this one then? Um, there's a few ideas behind it. I, I realised at the end that it had got roots in lots of different places around the country and lots of different points in time in my writing career. But the, really the kick-off for it was my previous book, The Apple Orchard, which was kind of coming out of my interest in cider, was about the whole kind of yearly cycle of apples and the importance of orchards in, in Britain and stuff. And I got some very nice reviews for it. And the Sunday Times described it as a very patriotic book. And I thought, patriotic, that's a weird word. I've never thought of myself as particularly patriotic. And, and I don't want anyone thinking the book is all kind of ukippy and, and sort of browbeating and stuff. And then I started thinking about what that word means and about the way it's being claimed. Uh, and I thought that patriotism was an interesting sort of subject to explore, especially with reference to food and drink, uh, because food is and has become even more so, uh, a really important part of defining nations. You think about how many national nicknames are food-based, whether that's roast beef or frogs or krauts or or whatever. Uh, And I thought that we had a fairly curious relationship with our own cuisine. And I first noticed this in Cascale when writing about beer, that, that we tend to have a downer on our own produce and we tend to love everybody else's. And it it really began as an experiment in seeing if I could be patriotic about British food and drink in a sort of progressive, non-jingoistic, non-sort of ukippy way, really. So how does it manifest itself in, in beer then? You said people are... You know, we tend to be down on our own produce, but, like, you know, Britain has great beer. Yeah, I mean, we're in the middle of a craft beer revolution at the moment. Uh, There's never been a better time to drink beer. Um, We have more different styles of beer, more different breweries available to us than ever before. And when you dig into the, the cool craft beer scene, 
All the brewers in that scene are brewing American beer styles using American hops. Uh, more than 50% of the hops in British beer were grown in America rather than Britain. And is if that you, just the economics or is that it, like no, a prejudice No, it's, it's as well? taste. It's taste. Yeah. Uh, American hops, I mean, this is one of the wonderful things about this whole area is that hops have terroir. Uh, and if you grow hops in different places around the world, they have different flavours. And they tend to go with national characteristics. It's quite weird. So British hops are quite reserved, quite uh, subtle, quite earthy, redolent of a, of a, of a wet Kentish road through the woods in, in autumn. American hops are big and bold and brash and in your face and, and really kind of reaching for the stars in the, in the, in the vividness of their flavours. And, um, and we now prefer American hops in American beer styles. And if you ask any craft beer nerd what the, what the big trends are in beer at the moment, they're coming straight out of America. And by comparison, British beer is a bit naff, it's a bit boring. On beer Twitter and beer social media, British real ale gets described as twiggy, uh, boring brown beer. And yet, when you go to these American craft brewers and you say, right, you're the coolest brewers in the world, isn't it great that you're so much more highly regarded in Britain uh, than indigenous British beers are? And they go, you're joking, aren't you? British beers are the beers that inspired us to start. So we love American beers. And the people bring those American beers adore British beer above anything else, but we don't like it. And that just seemed very typical of our national character, really. And so what is it about, I was going to say what's so bad about British food, but what I mean by that more is it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Because Mm. we don't have the same sort of close relationship with food that, say, you know, we imagine the French Mm. or Italians do, do we? No, not at all. Uh, and I, I try and explore why that is. And I think it comes down to the Industrial Revolution. Um, in most of the research that I've been doing and most of the stuff I've been reading, people say, yeah, well, it's, it's rationing in the war. That killed off British food culture uh, because we used to have these great feasts and banquets and then rationing put this kind of grey monotony over everything. Now, when you look back at what happened during rationing, rationing was a vast improvement in most people's diets. Uh, if you were a working-class person in the north of England in the 1930s, you were probably living on black tea, bread and margarine, and the occasional fish and chips when you could afford it. And when we had rationing, you know, if you were getting two eggs and one rasher of bacon a week, it was two eggs and one rasher of bacon more than you were getting before the war. And there were these ration-focused restaurants called British restaurants. And after the war, people pleaded for the government to keep them open because it was so much better than what they'd had before. So rationing for most people actually improved the standard of British food. And the fact that we think it decimated British food shows, I think, how class-based the, the kind of cultural criticism of our, of our cuisine is, that most people who write about food are very middle-class and above. But when you look back to the Industrial Revolution, we were the first in nation to industrialise, and we did it very quickly. So within generations, people went from living on the land, knowing where the food came from, often growing it themselves, to living in the middle of big cities and having absolutely no contact with where the food was grown and being totally reliant on buying it from shops or street vendors or whatever. I think people who studied other countries more than me might disagree, but my my view is that in places like France and Italy, they industrialised later and they industrialised slower. And the bond between the people and the land may be stretched and was tautened, but was never snapped so brutally as it was here. You use a, a couple of examples, one of which is Bass beer in comparison to champagne and the, and the sort of varying fortunes of those products. Tell us. Yeah, I think they're very comparable because, and, it, and it's also quite telling, I would imagine, that when I start telling this story, people would laugh at the audacity of me comparing Bass Ale with champagne. Um, but in, the, in their day, both were very similar. And uh, I, I read about how champagne was first kind of protected 
within French agriculture. And it was a key time for the idea of French statehood, French nationality, the French national character. And you say, well, champagne is part of what it means to be French. So I put a line in the jockey subsoil and said, if you make this on this side of the line, it's champagne. If you make it on that side of the line, sorry, it's just sparkling wine. Uh, and obviously that caused a huge amount of resentment. It was characterised as a civil war at the time in France. And the French protected uh, the name, the method, uh, the method champenoise, the character of it, the style of it, the bottling of it, the image of it. Uh, all this was totally wrapped up in regulation and protection because it was definitive of what France was. Basel was the world's first global beer brand. It was as revered in beer as champagne was in wine. And the people who made Basel protected the commercial trademark. You could make the same beer, tasting the same, using the same ingredients, in the same town, using the same water, so long as you didn't put a red triangle on it, like Bastard. Uh, and I just thought it was such, such a sharp contrast between the two nations that we protect the commercial trademark, that's what matters, and the French protect the way of life, the culture of it. And you look at where Champagne is now and where Basel is now, and I don't think their fortunes are unlinked from, from that different style of protection. Um, so... We're going to go through the book and look at a few of the examples. of You've, you've chosen eight different types of you know, British classics, some of them more controversial than others, perhaps. But all the way through the book, you're also talking about your own, mm. you know, growing up in Barnsley and your own sort of memories and what these food means to you. So let's talk about that more generally, first of all. Yeah, that was a surprise. That was not in the proposal that I submitted to my publishers. This was, I'm going, to, I'm going to have eight or nine British meals, and I'm going to choose typical examples of them. I'm not looking for the best fish and chips, the Sunday roast. I'm, having, I'm looking for one that everyone would recognise as typical of, of what to expect. And I went away for a week to write, and I thought, before I had a big pile of research, kind of cultural studies around food and things like that, and the history of fish and chips and the history of curry and that kind of thing. And I thought, before I get into the research, I'll just write down a few ideas I've got buzzing around my head for just get my first thoughts out on paper first. And a week later, I'd written 25,000 words of memoir. And I thought, where the hell did that come from? That was not my intention. But it's just what came out when I started thinking about food. And what I've noticed in conversations since then is that when I start talking to other people about the meals in the book, other people have the same reaction. They come out with examples of these meals that they had when they were 10 years old or the version that their granny gave them when they were tiny or, 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 or these significant moments in life when food has been part of it. And I think there's this natural link between food and memoir. And so I start to explore that a little bit with uh, old Brillat Savran, who said, you are what you eat. And looking at some of the food studies now where uh, some academics have said, no, you are what you ate, uh, because it's the memory that's so powerful. And I believe that's true, because the meals I selected are the meals that British people say they love the most when they're asked in surveys. And there's a lot of these surveys uh, seems to be happening all the time. They're not reflective of the meals that you find on the high street today. But they're the meals that people have in their hearts. They're in my heart. And I, you know, the, the book will stand or fall on whether they're in other people's hearts or not as well. Well, I was going to say, to what extent then, having discovered that the memoir was coming out of this project as well, did that then guide your hand in the, the meals that you actually chose? I'd like to think it didn't. <laughs> because I'd, I'd already chosen the meals before I started writing the memoir. But I was shocked when I came up with my final list how many of them were meals that I 
personally adore. There's only one in there that I don't actually like, and it's the shortest chapter in the book. But the rest of them were like, no, And no. you're wrong about that. <laughs> yes, and I'm wrong about that in the end. I have to, <laughs> I have to kind of come clean. Oh, all right, then. It's good. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the, these, the meals that I think of, and it's, it's a heart versus head thing, and it's a, and it's a Bounsley versus London thing. There's who I was growing up, who I was born as, and there's this kind of, it's not an artificial persona, but it's the person that I became and kind of self-constructed when I left Barnsley, became the first person in my family to go to university, get a degree, come down to London, get a white-collar job instead of a job down the pit. And that version of me eats sushi and cooks Korean barbecue and makes my own sourdough bread and, and all every other kind of North London foodie cliché. And yet you put a Sunday roast or a plate of fish and chips in front of me and I'm like, oh no, this is what it's really about though. This is the proper stuff. This is the stuff I secretly crave. Let's, well, we're going to go through some of those meals, but there's a sort of transitional chapter at the beginning, which I wanted to talk about first, which is extremely personal. Tell us about the pie and peas in Barnes. Yes. I mean, I mentioned that there were kind of various starting points of this book. And literally the, the starting point of the book is uh, when I first took my wife, Liz, to, to Barnsley. And we, we got together and we were totally in love, as you are. And I think we visited her family after being about three weeks together. And it was six months before I got around to taking up to Barnsley and thought, oh, God, you know, why? I'm kind of, am I ashamed of where I come from, all this kind of stuff. When I did take it to Barnsley, I was like, look at the country parks outside Barnsley. Look, look at the hills outside Barnsley. Look at the cool cities of Leeds and Sheffield that, that are quite near Barnsley. And I was avoiding going into Barnsley itself until one day I just went, sod it. I'm going to take it to Barnsley Market to have pie and pea supper because that's who I really am. And she has to kind of see who I really am and figure out if she likes that version of me as well. And so we went and had pie and peas. And like any regional speciality, if it's not good, it won't survive because everyone's eating it and there's loads of people making it. And so we had pie and peas and she was like, oh my God, that was amazing. Just don't ever tell anyone I said that, (laughs) which is a promise I've broken to this day. But 20 years later, she still tells the story of this being our first date. And every time she tells that story, it gets a laugh. Isn't Pete funny taking his wife to Barnsley for pork pie and peas on their first date? It's like, well, it wasn't our first date, but it still makes a good story. And I started to go, well, why does it make a good story? Well, because it's funny, isn't it? Imagine taking someone to Barnsley to a market for pie and peas. That's hilarious. And I just start to think, what if I took her to a Vietnamese street food market for a dish that poor people in Vietnam eat? Or if I took her to a deli street market? for whatever the kind of poorest people there eat. That'd be really cool. So why is it not cool? Apart from the fact that we can, you know, we think of places like Delhi and, and Vietnam as glamorous compared to Barnsley. But, you know, if I'd taken to Shoreditch for Vietnamese food or Indian street food, that would have been cool. But take to Barnsley for the, the UK equivalent. And that's what got me going with this whole idea, the comparison with the Cascale thing, about why do we devalue our own stuff? If pie and peas came from the American South or from Sri Lanka or from Korea, every street food van in Shoreditch would be serving it because it's gorgeous. (laughs) But because it comes from Yorkshire, we don't. The other thing to say about that, though, is if you did go to a a Shoreditch Vietnamese restaurant, it would be obviously considerably more expensive than than it would be on a street market in Hanoi. Yeah. So, like... Perhaps there's something to do with the cost of the pie and peas in Barnsley that sort of keeps it in that sort of level of not being some sort of trendy sold out of a food truck. Perhaps there is, but you can get some fairly good deals there. 
Um, no, I mean it's cheap. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's That's what, yeah, cheap. but if you, you know, you can get some. I think there might, there might be a bit of that. But people never asked how much it cost. They just thought the idea of it was was hilarious. You look at the cheese sandwich as we go through these other meals. I want to sort of look at them at a certain sort of angle that you cover in the book. And for the cheese sandwich, let's talk about how it became this sort of all-conquering behemoth of everybody's lunches. Yes. Well, the, uh, the pre-packaged sandwich, not just the cheese sandwich. Yeah, so apparently the cheese sandwich, in its many, many different forms, is our favourite lunch. I had um, it today. Well, I mean, with this, with this in mind. Um, well, it was um, Jarlsberg and brown bread. Right. With chutney. Uh, the, the last one I had was a Pret posh cheese and pickle sandwich. I'm like... Why does it have to be a posh cheese and pickle sandwich? This is the thing we've got to mess around with everything, but that's what's happening now with the with the prepacked sandwich thing. I found the history of that fascinating. Very little re- original research on my part. Uh, there's a brilliant piece in the Guardian about it a couple of years ago, talking about yeah, the, I remember that um, article. An amazing piece, and it started off with M and S selling prepackaged sandwiches, and people going, "How stupid! Who on earth is going to buy something they can easily make at home?" And it took off to such an extent that it became the foundation of the whole M&S food thing, which is now, I don't know, maybe bigger than the rest of M&S. I don't know. Uh, but it feels like it. You see a lot more M&S food shops than you do normal M&Ss. And everybody else now sells prepackaged sandwiches. And novelty seems to be the thing that drives them. You know, they seem to be obsessed by novelty. You probably can't find a prepackaged cheese and pickle sandwich, or you'd have to look pretty hard for one. But with a twist or with some, this, that and the other, bacon sandwiches... People now, chains like Pret now sell bacon sandwiches on French brioche rolls. Why? The French don't serve it like that. They don't have bacon sandwiches on French brioche rolls. So why do we think it's better than on a normal white fluffy roll? But it's the novelty thing that drives it. And I think there's still this terror of if we don't get distracted by novelty, we might shock horror, go back to making them ourselves, and that would be a dreadful thing. And it's it, that article is brilliant, revealing this way that you know, people working in the sandwich industry feel genuinely, personally hurt and offended if they see someone making their own packed lunch and bringing it in. And I think people who make their own packed lunches now are heroes. I, I, I salute them. Because the sandwiches are nicer, apart from anything else. Pre-packed sandwiches, the bread tastes like wet flannel. It doesn't taste like bread. And the fillings are all kind of 90% mayonnaise. If you make a sandwich yourself, it tastes nicer. The other thing that you do with each of these sections is that you, you go and, as you said at the beginning, try and... Find an example, a classic example of, of one of these things and experience it out in the wild, as it were. And so let's use this first one, the cheese sandwich, to talk about how you chose those places. <laughs> so the narrative of the book uh, doesn't quite go in the same chronology as, as my research for it. And the cheese sandwich was actually the last one I did. There were fairly obvious places to go for a lot of these meals. If you think of fish and chips, I mean, I think of where I grew up, and that's where you get a lot of the memoir. Uh, but for most people, I think they think perfect fish and chips. When I'm having fish and chips, it's going to be by the seaside. Sunday roast, you know, a generation ago used to be your mum's Sunday roast. Now, for most people, it's in the pub. You know, a pub that does a good Sunday roast, you need to be booking a table on Thursday or Friday to make sure you get in. Where else would you think of a, a full English breakfast other than a greasy spoon? So it was trying to have the, each meal in its typical location, the right place to have it. And the cheese sandwich was the one I struggled with the most. I thought, it's so... I mean, where do you have it? I thought I could go up to some work canteen and lurk in the corner, being suspicious and dodgy, or I could I could go to Pret and sit there feeling depressed. And in the end, I just kind of, quite facetiously, I just, I just went, to, went to Sandwich, the town of Sandwich, even though the Earl of Sandwich never actually went there, as far as I can tell. Um, and almost certainly didn't really invent the sandwich <laughs> And he probably, he didn't invent the sandwich, but it did get named after him. Um, it's weird, my, my dad used to refer to sandwiches as bread and jam or bread and cheese. 
we used to refer to things as bread and cheese or bread and ham or bread and whatever before the olive sandwich came along. So he certainly did something that, that popularised them for them to be named after. Bread and crayfish, please. Yes, <laughs> bread and prawns. And uh, so he certainly did something. And I got to sandwich and, and I couldn't find a kind of artisanal sandwich shop. Why do I even feel the need to say the word artisanal? A proper kind of sandwich shop that makes some sandwiches. And eventually I found one called The Sandwich Shop in Sandwich. And it was a brilliant illustration of, of this difference because it was two doors down from Acosta. And in The Sandwich Shop in Sandwich, they made the sandwiches to order by hand. And they weren't special. They weren't fancy dandy. It was like, it was probably Cathedral City Cheddar. It was probably Branston Pickle. It was probably Hovis wholemeal bread. It didn't taste any different from that. But it was made with care and it was made with attention and, and love and consideration. And it's done carefully and properly. You go to the cost of two doors up and the sandwiches are a quid more expensive. And they're in those kind of triangular cases and they're too cold. And like I say, it's all mayonnaise. And the service is just boring and robotic. And and yet there were far more people in the Costa than in the sandwich shop. And it just illustrated this weird reliance we have on chain brands now, this nervousness that a lot of people have about, well, the sandwich shop is a one-off, it's an independent shop, I don't know what to expect if I go in there, but I know what I'll get in a Costa, whether I like it or not. So I'd rather have mediocrity than uncertainty. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Pete Brown, and we're talking about his new book, Pie Fidelity in Defense of British Food. And Pete, we're going to move on to fish and chips. And as we talked about in the first half, lots of the meals in this, most of the meals in this book, all but one, are things that you you know you have distinct memories of of growing yes. up, and and none more so than fish and chips, right? Yes, it was my favourite meal and it's still at the heart of my life really and uh, it was a very sentimental meal for me it linked to a lot of my key moments growing up and uh, it made an important point as well because when I grew up the fish and chips that I ate every week I used to think that was what fish and chips were like that's what fish and chips taste like and then when I went away to university and I encountered what other people got when they ordered fish and chips. I was horrified. You know, I went from the pub I worked in in St Andrews served this kind of bendy, bright orange thing, which was a, a breadcrumbed fish out of a deep freeze and stringy little fries. And I just thought, this is not fish and chips. And 
when people say that British food has a dodgy reputation, if you foreign visitors who come to Britain want to try fish and chips, because fish and chips is now our national meal. It's what the people around the world think of us and think of what we eat. And if you go straight to a central London pub and order fish and chips and pay 15 quid for it, you're going to get something fairly ropey, probably, uh, even though the menu will have a picture of our famous fish and chips, because it's not being made with the proper equipment and they're not making hundreds of portions of it every day like you get a proper chippy. You used to have a queue for a good half an hour at my chippy and it was one of several within easy walking distance. If the fish and chips were no good, no one would have gone there. They'd have gone to the other ones instead. And so I realised that I grew up with excellent fish and chips. I won't say the best, but excellent fish and chips. And it made me realise that a lot of people who grow up with kind of fairly localised versions of cuisine don't realise they're eating very good versions of it. And neither does anybody else. They'll they, they laugh at you and say, oh, you like fish and chips? Ugh. And it's like, well, no, you've not had the good stuff. You're not had it where I grew up. In a minute, we're going to talk about curry. And you also talk in the book about spaghetti bolognese, both meals of which... Although you make, you know, great arguments about them. People might contest whether or not these were British foods. Obviously, you know, fish and chips, as you say, is the quintessential British food. Of course, it wasn't always. No, no. I mean, uh, if you go back far enough, I think the Sunday roast kind of defeated me in this. But as part of this kind of can you be patriotic without being jingoistic thing, I wanted to kind of get to a point where if you go back far enough, every single classic British meal has multicultural and international roots and basically they all do apart from roast beef uh roast beef is straight down the line from these islands and so at various different points over history things have become naturalized british meals and fish and chips you know the, the way fried fish came with juice from southern portugal initially as a way of preserving fish uh, rather than serving it uh we didn't have potatoes until the 17th century so they're certainly not traditional british they came later to britain than uh, they came to most countries. You hear a lot of people say either the French or the Belgians invented chips. There's no documentary evidence of that. But what seems to happen is that wherever potatoes arrive, people learn, figure out pretty quickly that they taste really good when you fry them and you chop them into bits. So <laughs> I think probably wherever potatoes came in, within 10 years, people were eating some form of chips. And again, this is a this is a food that, I mean, a lot of it's reputation, I think. I mean, you talk briefly about the pie and peas as well, but a lot of fish and chips reputation comes from the fact that this is absolutely you know fundamentally a, a working class food yeah and class became a big issue partly because of my working class background but not solely because of that uh i think it is a, a trait uh, throughout these meals that they tend to be kind of rooted traditionally tend to be rooted in working class and fish and chips is a really interesting one in that respect because it took quite a long time to shake off its class roots really and when fish and chip was at its peak in the sort of 1920s and 1930s when we had about 35,000 chippies up and down the UK the upper classes were really down on it they used to say things like it causes cancer in babies and things like this that the, the smell of frying chip oil used to be described as, as something that caused illness and spending money on fish and chips instead of cooking from scratch at home was seen as kind of slovenly degrading thing to do which when you think now about when you hear people arguing about people eating fast food instead of cooking nice meals from scratch the misunderstanding around that issue is just the same now as it was then if you're really poor and someone said well just buy these ingredients and uh, and cook them yourself it's like 
Right, go so to the local farmer's market yes, and buy those ingredients. Why doesn't everyone buy the organic chicken from their local farmer? It's like, well, what am I going to cook it with? And in the 1920s and 30s, you had to think about not just the cost of the food, but the cost of the coal to light your fire, to light your stove. You had to think about the fact that probably most people in the family were working till really late and there's no servants and no one at home to prepare that food for you. The same thing now. People say, well, why not just, you know, make a big batch of a meal and put it in the freezer? Yeah, who can afford a freezer? Who's got space in a little tiny one-bedroom bedsit to even put a freezer in? Can you get to your local supermarket if you don't have a car or you can't afford a taxi? And these issues in different ways were just as prevalent then as they are now. And fish and chips was so important to the working class because for the vast majority of them, it was the only hot meal you ever got. It was the only hot meal that was ever affordable. And when you're basically on a starvation diet, which most people were, this is a source of lots of B vitamins, source of lots of omega-3 oils, vital carbohydrates, which you need if you're doing a, a working job. And so it, it wasn't a junk food meal. It was a really nutritious, healthy meal. And it was just the fact that you know, even the camaraderie of people standing outside fish and chip shops chatting away as they eat their chips was seen as somehow unsavoury and unwanted. Um, I said we were going to talk about curry, and we've talked about fish and chips as the the quintessential British meal, but, of course, people may remember when Robin Cook gave that speech where he mm. talked about the chicken tikka masala as being actually a classic example of, of the way that Britain assimilates... Absolutely. ...people and and things and culture. And the history of how curry became so popular in this country... It's quite complicated. It really is. So I, I did a previous book where I went to India with a barrel of beer and learned quite a lot about Anglo-Indian relationships and the East India Company and followed by the Raj. And it's a, it's a very difficult story to talk about as a, as a white middle-class person because British people created huge atrocities in India, but other British people went over there and absolutely fell in love with the culture. And so much, we say Britain gave India the railways and the parliament and everything else. They gave us so much uh, of what we value and what's rich in our Everything from bungalows to pyjamas to gingham uh, you know, come, comes from India. And a lot of British people in India absolutely loved the food. Or they loved the accent of the food. Uh, and they created an Anglo-Indian cuisine over there. And we think about things like mulligatawn and kedgeree now as perfect examples of that. Coronation chicken. Coronation chicken, perfect example. And if you survived India, you'd come back to the UK having made your fortune after about three years. And so in the early 19th century, you get loads of British expats going back home with lots of money. And they want to hang on to the stuff they were buying in India. So India Pale Ale becomes Britain's favourite beer style. Uh, the first curry restaurant opens in London in 1809. You know, we think about, oh, curry goes back to the 1970s, does it? No, it goes back to 1809. And if you had one of those big uh, upper-class dinner tables uh, in the mid-19th century, if you didn't have a couple of curries in the banquet, then you were persona non grata. You were, you'd committed a social faux pas. Uh, but what we had was always an anglicised version of, of Indian food. And then in the 1970s, when we get a lot of uh, particular Bangladeshis moving to the UK to avoid war, they get here and they simply can't find the ingredients uh, that they're used to cooking with. And so at home, they start cooking an Indianified version of British food. But when they open cafes, they serve, again, they remember what was popular in the Raj, and they serve an anglicised version of Indian food. So you'll hear some upper-class commentators saying that meals like chicken tikka masala are a perfect example of how Britain's not just content of having crap food of its own, it has to drag everybody else's down to its level. We didn't do that. 
Indian and Bangladeshi people came here and adapted it to our tastes and to our climate and to the the food and stuff that was available here. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think I think British Indian food is different from Indian food. Uh, it's its own thing, and it's a great fusion, and it's it's a product of its local terroir. Let's talk about the um, experience of going and eating the. Uh... The classic <laughs> Indian here. I'm slightly disappointed that you went to Birmingham and not Leicester. But I know. What are you going to do? I, I think I'd have probably got something too good in Leicester. But uh, what what fascinates me about this, because I, I say this in the book, uh, if you compare another one of the big themes in the book is authenticity and our obsession with that. And I went through my phase of cooking authentic Indian food. I, I've, I've done classes with Indian housewives and cooks in, in the UK. And basically, I can cook a, a nicer, healthier meal than you're going to get in most British Indian restaurants. But I would still rather go <laughs> to the restaurant to have it because it's the occasion. You compare it to other restaurants and it's the really thick, quite starched white tablecloths with the nice runners across them. It's the, it's the courtesy with which the waiting staff treat you compared to any other restaurant. It's the way the pickles come out. It's the way that people are just kind of ordering all the time and bringing these dishes out. And there's a sense of occasion to it. And the history of Indian dining, both before we got there, when it was the Mughal emperors, and, and after we went in and trashed the place, it was all about big banquets. And I think the modern British Indian restaurant is a kind of throwback to those huge banquets where you've just got all these different things on the table and there's a, a sense of opulence. Even in the menus, the, the language, I love the language of Indian menus compared to others. It's always like succulent pieces of chicken in a mouth-watering broth tempered with uh, seductive spices. And it's just so beautifully written. And, God, I'm going to have to go for one now tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you've you've nicely brought up the subject that I want to finish on basically which is this I mean nonsensical idea of authenticity in in most (laughs) cases isn't it it is it is another book that I read while I was researching this and and writing it a great book called The Authenticity Hoax written by a Canadian author about 10 years ago and he talks about how authenticity has replaced cool and he uses the great example because music was my first love uh, that 20 years ago you could be into bands that nobody else had heard of and his example is he used to kind of go to New York, buy records uh, take them back home to Ontario and it would be a year before anyone else could get those records in the age of Spotify and, and everything else as soon as a band is cool your dad knows it's cool your, your boss knows it's cool I mean the Arctic Monkeys were a, a great example of that where the week their first album came out Gordon Brown said how much he was into them and stuff and and food has replaced it because food is still oh yes well you can eat spag ball if you want but but I've been to Bologna and I know that the authentic dish is raguola bolognese and, and they don't have it with with spaghetti they have it with different noodles and stuff like that oh well I've been to this proper village in Vietnam where they make the proper version of, of this ban mai or whatever it's a form of exclusivity and it's utterly utterly ridiculous as you say yesterday I ate in a restaurant that the banner across the restaurant said authentic Italian food and I picked up the menu and it had spaghetti bolognese on it spaghetti bolognese is not an Italian dish um, but if you put this word authentic I mean if you were to count up how many times it appears in a supermarket on on labels and things like that and of course there's no way to police it uh, there's no authenticity police to go around and go that's not authentic that would never appear in my country but we're desperate for it we're desperate for this authenticity in food as long as it's not our own so I've been talking to Pete Brown. We've been talking about his latest book, Pie Fidelity, in defence of British food, which is out now in the UK from particular books. Pete, thank you so much for coming in and talking about it. Thank you very much. Making me hungry. 
This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.